I in the Lord do put my trust. How is it then that ye say to my soul, flee as a bird unto your mountain high? For though the wicked bend their bow, their shafts on string they fit, that those who upright are in heart, they privily made it. Welcome to the Old Pass Podcast. My name is Cody Justice. We're pleased to have everyone with us again. I'm joined by Benjamin Hicks. Benjamin, would you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Benjamin Hicks. I'm a pastor serving here in London, Ontario, Canada. Michael, would you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Michael Spangler. I live in North Carolina. And for this episode, we have a special guest, Matt Marino. We're very excited to have him on the show this evening. Matt, would you go ahead and open up and just introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about your Christian experience and some of your present work. I also I think we spoke a bit about um, a college that you're, you're working with. If you could tell us about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my name is Matt Marino, and uh, I'm a pastor of an ARP church in Winter Springs, Florida. That's just a suburb of Orlando. I spent about 20 years in Boise, Idaho, planting churches, and uh, my wife and I have four children. We uh, homeschooled them. Um, we're just getting to the end <laughs> of their childhood, so I am uh, kind of starting seminary late when I started in 2016 uh, at RTS. Uh, that's where I got my MDiv, got my uh, PhD at Puritan up in and Rap. And I'm just finishing the dissertation of that, and uh, that the title of that is God, Reason, and Nature, and hopefully I'll get a chance to explain that. It's uh, about natural theology, the, the role of natural theology in the rest of Christian thinking. So um, that that's kind of, uh, you know, what I'm about. I'm kind of an R.C. Sproul guy. He was very influential on me at, as far as sort of a contemporary person. There's tons of, you know, Christian thinkers before that that have been influential on me. And... Um, I've always uh, felt a calling, not just to ministry, but also to Christian academia. And so uh, I've gotten the opportunity, been blessed to be offered the position at uh, New Aberdeen College. And uh, if if you're in the audience, you don't know what that is. It's because it's a new college. and It's going to be based in Charlotte, North Carolina. And their first classes, their inaugural year is going to be the fall of uh, 25. So we still have another year. Um and so I'll be here in Orlando uh, pastoring uh, this ARP church and uh, hopefully uh, doing some things with the dissertation. And uh, so that that's pretty much it. Very exciting. Once you finish that dissertation, if you're able to uh, share it, I'm, I'd like to read it. Perhaps the other men would like to read it as well. Benjamin, um, if I remember correctly, you've had some exposure to Matt. Would you briefly note some of that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I went to the PRTS as well when I did my Masters of Divinity. And when I went down there, I think I uh, was operating under basically a presuppositionalist uh, frame. I just wasn't overly familiar with any other way of doing apologetics or or philosophy so much. And um, one of my classmates there in the MDiv program really encouraged me to check out Matt's work and um, was able to 
listened to some of his uh, lectures, some of his messages, and found that a lot of his discussion about the issue of prolegomena, the issue of reason and um, theology was actually extremely challenging, very helpful. I think it was one of the reasons that I got keyed into reading more closely the Reformed Scholastics, men like William Ames and Francis Turretin. So yeah, Matt has been a blessing to me. I, I love his website. Uh, looking forward to reading more uh, from him and listening to what he has to say today. Yeah, I'll speak for myself here. I think that um, first time I was exposed, someone must have shared, was exposed to some of your material, Matt. Someone must have shared something on Facebook or elsewhere, a YouTube video. And I remember you were talking about uh, Van Til presuppositionalism and, and worldview. And we were, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but that was my first exposure. And then uh, here and there, I came across your podcast or, or your sermons on Sermon Audio. I would listen to a few. I listened to some last year on the state, um, politics and the state and things like that. And I myself found you to be a very clear thinker. And it, it appeared to me that you're keyed into a lot of issues that uh, are necessary to understand, to understand why we are where we are and what to do about it. And that's really what we want to talk about uh, with you tonight. We could ask this initial question, what hath the 20th century wrought? Uh, and with that, we're, some people may understand what that question means. Uh, we're really wondering what's going on with this confusion surrounding Cornelius Van Til, Thomas Aquinas, presuppositionalism versus classical apologetics, theonomy, Christian re reconstruction, natural law, natural theology, all these things. Matt, what are these things and help us get our bearings on this discussion? Well, I think if you ask a, a presuppositionalist, I think they would uh, object to the idea that uh, their position does not have historical roots. Uh, they're going to want to say that this is the Reformed view. Van Til himself would want to argue that this was the Reformed view, namely presuppositionalism. Um, However, the problem comes even in Van Til's writings, because Van Til is very critical of the entire Reformed tradition for not being Reformed enough. In fact, it's, it's fair points he reminds you a lot of Bart, and that's not a guilt by association uh, argument. Uh, both in substance and in a lot of histor his historiography, he winds up uh, tracing a lot of the same lines as Bart does. Now, to be fair, uh, there are some precursors of Van Til's thought in Bavink and Kuiper, and uh, so he roots himself in some ideas, antithesis from Kuiper, and uh, the idea of redeemed natural theology, uh, that you take your stand in scripture, that phraseology, that, that's right out of Bavink. And so, uh, yeah, you, you can uh, show a pedigree of sorts there. But in terms of the actual original magisterial reformers and the reform school plastics, I barely have to argue anymore that that was not the reform position, not just because of all of R.C. Sproul's work, but on a scholarly level, all of Richard Muller's work and, and a lot of other people who have uh, sort of followed on his coattails in the last 10 years and and showing that uh, all sorts of things, that there was a lot of scholastic method going on among the reformers. There was a lot of use of Aristotle's categories. There was a uh, careful, balanced appropriation of Aquinas. It doesn't mean they weren't critical of him at times. You could find statements in Calvin, Maastricht, or whoever, where they take a little shot at Aquinas. And that's, and, uh, to, to appreciate Aquinas and, and his way of arguing uh, is not to endorse everything that he said. It's not to, you know, baptize Aquinas 
in reformed. I don't know what the metaphor would be there, but uh, so a lot of this is you have to get beyond a lot of the caricatures that have been created by the Van Til tradition, and not just him, but by Bavink as well. Um, John Bolt has a great chapter in the book uh, Aquinas Among the Protestants, and what is it called? A doubting reformational anti-Thomism, I think is what he calls it. And he just goes along his own journey. And of course, he's, you know, he was a Bavink expert, but he showed how in the 19th century, Bavink was uh, a little bit guilty of this as well, of, of getting their ideas of Aquinas and scholasticism from what he called textbook Thomism. So it's sort of secondhand or sort of a, a telephone game, I guess, of instead of reading the original sources. And so that, that was going on before Van Til. But then with Van Til, it just uh, exploded open, this idea that we have to disagree with everything before Luther uh, or that uh, they'll embrace the, the liberal thesis. And a lot of people don't know it's a liberal thesis from Adolf Harnack, the idea that uh, Greek thought poisoned early Christian thought, even among the patristics. And uh, that's that's a very liberal idea, and you can show why they argued that. And a lot of people don't realize when they parrot that stuff that that's coming from liberal theology, uh, and it's a it's a very anti-metaphysical bias, and uh, it, it's an idea that they don't want to think of God or doctrine as something that is uh, not just supernatural, because Vantilians and even Bardians want to be supernaturalists, but they don't want to think about it as something that is essential, that has a nature, that has a fixed objective character that determines everything else. Um, anyway, that's. I realize that I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but uh, that's what happened in the last, I guess you could say now, 100 years uh, of this This was the reformed way of looking at everything until very, very recently when we've, we've started to reassess some of these things. There are a number of threads we could pull in there. One of them I'd like for you to expand on is that word metaphysical. You use that word. What does that word mean? I have no, say someone has no familiarity with that word. What do you mean by metaphysical or metaphysics? Well, metaphysics is also called first philosophy. So it's one of three main uh, branches or sub-disciplines within the, uh, sorry, philosophy that, that makes a study of being as being. And it's not that simple. It, it basically is asking the question, what exists? And what kind of a thing exists? So it's dealing with being, it's dealing with causality, it's dealing with really the the fundamental or essential way that things are, even beyond physical phenomena. So it includes physical phenomena, it embraces everything, but it's a science of understanding what is ultimate. And and uh, so it's so that a metaphysical way of looking at the world, you really have to go back behind Kant. Kant is the real villain, back behind even Bart. And even, uh, you know, from my point of view, from Van Til, Kant is the real villain here because he's the one that sort of put the last dagger in the heart of a metaphysical way of looking at the world. And historically, when I say that, I'm talking about everybody from Plato and Aristotle on through Augustine Aquinas, on down through the Reformers, and even someone as late as Jonathan Edwards. And, and, so, and of course, people still think like that after Kant, but you really have to paddle against the stream because what Kant did is he denied our access to the way the world is, uh, to objects, things as they are in themselves. Yeah, so when you do that, you don't really have a reality to appeal to. Benjamin, yeah. Matt made a claim here, and I can just imagine it would set some people's hair on fire, but he seemed to suggest that Cornelius Van Til, in some ways at least, is historically novel when you compare him to our Reformed heritage. Do you think that that's, that's fair? Well, yeah, 
It's it's interesting because for men of a particular generation, particularly those who are trained in a lot of reform institutions in the latter 20th century, Van Til, as I understand it, was considered the standard bearer of orthodoxy because he was opposing uh, Bartonism and opposing uh, denials of inerrancy and so forth. And so for some of our listeners, particularly if they, they come from that generation, uh, it's considered uh, shocking to to critique Van Til. Um, my own re- reading of uh, Van Til, I've read everything, but uh, my own reading of it is that you have uh, certainly a sincere Christian man who is trying to uh, respond in a context uh, that has been um, really uh, robbed of a sense of objective morality by the infecting power of postmodernism. And so he's battling for orthodoxy, as I, as I see it, in this context where there is a retreat from reality to, to what you call your, your basic commitments, uh, whatever that may be, whether Christian or non-Christian. And so within that arena, right, he's trying to just start from the a priori, the, the presupposition of scripture's foundation as the, the metaphysical claim that's going to save the church. I think that um, that is novel because if you just line him up with uh, the older works like Charles Hodge and, and his America theologian or someone like Van Maastricht or... Turretin, there is an appreciation for natural theology. And I think that even lines up with what you see in, for example, the Belgic Confession, where it talks about the two books of nature, the two books of Revelation, nature and scripture. And uh, what I would say is that, um, and I'm sure Matt will get into this, part of the the danger is that there are certain doctrines um, which are imperiled if you deny uh, natural revelation. There's not only consequences for our apologetics, probably our, our, our um, perspective on reality and our perspective on, on politics and things like that. There's also uh, a, a um, confusion when it comes to things like the doctrine of divine simplicity and things like that, because those things are arrived at through a proper understanding of, of natural theology. That's the way I would look at it. Um, Matt would correct anything about that. I'd uh, appreciate him doing so. Well, no, I agree with that completely. It's it's foundational, uh, and a lot of thinkers are starting to write about this, the way in which uh, natural theology forms uh, logical antecedents to uh, things in especially revealed theology. And, and one of the things, one of the, one of the marks of Vantillianism is to, is to basically conflate logical antecedents with moral authorities. And, and the way they do that is with this phrase, autonomous reasoning. Um, what we just described as... Uh, Things that have to come before uh, you can understand things in Scripture, and and even the Puritans would talk like this. There's a book by a guy named uh, Wallace Marshall. Maybe you're familiar with this, but uh, Puritanism and Natural Theology, and and he may, uh, in some of his claims, maybe go too far, but but he just quote after quote after quote in context of all the different Puritans who spoke about natural theology as foundational not just in in the case of showing evidence or whatever else, but also to aspects of specially revealed theology, like uh, the ones you mentioned there, the, the ones that are sort of the incommunicable attributes of God that are not, they're not spelled out in Scripture. Uh, um, what 
what is the data that we're working off of when we talk about not just divine simplicity, but even when we um, even when we handle attributes of God that are not uh, even as eternality and so forth, or when we run into passages where it seems like God doesn't know something, and open theists come in and seize on those passages, and we correct them. And there's no there's no passage that adjudicates between which passage we should take seriously and how to put that in context. We're always using natural theology when we when we put those pieces together. Um, but anyway, yes, I, I agree with you completely on that. Michael, I know that you have been teaching a systematic theology class at uh, the church you're at there. Regarding these things, have you found what Matt and Benjamin have been saying is true and useful for you in the way you teach? Yes, we've actually just finished our portion on the attributes of God. And it is very useful to speak of them through nature and reason. You know, I explained to the people from Romans one twenty that the invisible things of God are clearly seen from the creation of the world, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, which is a good summary of God's existence and attributes. As I've explained, Presbyterians, Westminster Shorter Catechism 4, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Those are things nature teaches. And we use the help of nature, even in explaining the evidences we see in scripture of these truths. But one thing I made very clear beforehand when we were speaking expressly of scripture and nature is that though nature is a help to us and we believe in natural theology, and it's necessary for teaching and for the perfection of our theology and it is a help in so many other ways, not least of which because, as Paul says, it leaves unbelievers who've never read the Bible without excuse. It is not our sufficient rule for theology. Scripture alone is the sufficient rule. Reason is a help, and we ought to gladly receive that help. That's what I hear Matt saying, and that's what I think is the real weight of the recovery of classical apologetics, classical theism, etc., is it's putting reason in its place and using it as the help God intended. But I trust we'd all agree that it doesn't unseat Scripture as the norm of theology, as the only sufficient rule, and the rule through which and by which we bring in the helps of other lesser or subordinate rules. Matt, I'm wondering... Could you tell us what would a Vantillian response to some of these things be? Would they say that, uh, for example, man in his autonomy can't reason correctly about nature and these things that we're talking about? Would they say something like that? Yeah, and Vantill was given the overstatement, and he was also given a qualification, kind of like Bart was in, in, in a way, too. He'll say one thing, and then somewhere else he'll say another. You can find statements in Vantill where he affirms uh, the uh, clarity of general revelation and even a kind of natural theology and even a post-fall understanding and knowledge of God and nature, but then somewhere else he'll deny that. And so some of it's just uh, a problem with that. And Vantillians will sometimes say, well, English was his uh, second language or something like that. Um, they'll also sometimes respond and say, um, well, this is a caricature anyway, uh, because he did believe in natural theology, a redeemed natural theology, one that Christians could use and 
it, that would fall into the area of things like the transcendental argument, indirect forms of, of argument would be legitimate things that you could say, although I would argue to Evangelion, if the whole reason that the unbeliever is not tracking with you is that he, uh, he doesn't believe uh, he doesn't believe the same thing about cause or about morality or about design. His ultimate presuppositions can't account for that. Well, then how's he going to do any better with this more indirect proof or with you, you know, uh, slashing at his foundations negatively, if, if that's the presuppositional method? How, how is that applied consistency or consistently? Um, there was one more idea I had in terms of response that they would have, uh, but now it's not coming to me. But I, I think those are a few other things that they would say wouldn't do you also find them saying that they can't unbelievers can't even reason correctly and and right that's it that was the thing i was going to say yes they'll say uh that that's a caricature as well van Til will say things that go that far and then other times they'll say no we're not saying that the unbeliever doesn't believe that two plus two equals four or you know things like that they will they have a kind of knowledge but because of their ultimate presuppositions, their ultimate commitments, so they have to clarify what they mean by presuppositions. People like John Frame do this, where he says, well, what we mean by presupposition in this context is your, your ultimate worldview commitment, and that you have to argue in that circle. And so they have to define circular reasoning somewhat differently than we would normally understand it as well. But yeah, they, they, would, uh, uh, they would say that, that it's, that's, a, that's a caricature as well. <laughs> But I find that they do they do leave themselves open to that critique in the way that they articulate themselves at times. Even I read a Bonson quote just the other day where he said that um, believers have nothing in common with with unbelievers. I think, well, we have a lot in common. We have a, yeah. actually quite a a lot in common that we should appeal to. So we've gone around a bit, Matt. I'm wondering if you could, regarding this 20th century and everything we've been talking about thus far, could you put a pin? in the problem itself. What is the problem? And then answering that, we could maybe go to the answer. Advantilianism in particular? In this whole this whole debate, the confusion that is surrounding epistemology and metaphysics, all of these things, what would you how would you sum up the problem? Uh fideism in one word. Fideism. And a lot of that, yeah, I heard one time John Warwick Montgomery say uh he was describing the phenomenon of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And he said uh how did he say it? Uh, they could be summarized in this way. The liberal says, if you can't beat them, join them. The fundamentalist says, if you can't beat them, run. And we say, beat them. <laughs> and he was speaking for the evidentialist at Montgomery, a more evidentialist perspective. But anyway, that's summation of the modernist fundamentalist controversy uh, versus other alternatives can really be pushed back in time to the whole enlightenment. Uh, I think it is very easy for Christians to simply to buy into the fact or buy into the idea that we can't compete with secular thought. We've maybe been browbeat for so long, or maybe we've accepted bad theologies that are anti-intellectual, that are, that are Gnostic, or in some way discount the, the mind in one way or another. And I think we get so used to that generation after generation that we uh, embrace uh, more parochial theologies. And, and sometimes it becomes a form of virtue signaling. I know, and I believe Antillianism, so much of it is just a kind of sanctified kind of virtue signaling that we're we're being biblical and, and stuff like we're not being extra biblical and sometimes it's just, just as simple as that it's just it's it's harder to do the work of uh, speaking in the language that uh, the the people around you can understand and and uh, and and that's the other thing too is that when they talk about common notions in, in a negative way or neutral territory or autonomous reasoning 
they're doing the very thing that they're accusing their opponents of and they're trying to protect, and that is that, you know, all truth is God's truth. Uh, the, the famous example of Antibill um, uh, talking about uh, the unbeliever is like a, a little boy that, that is sitting on his grandfather's lap and he's pulling at his beard and so on, and he's likening that to the unbeliever borrowing from God and so forth. Well, if the, I would just challenge the presuppositionalists. If you really believe that, and you should, then you should not talk about common notions as some kind of a retreat or some kind of we're, we're, we're using. And this is what happens with natural law, too, not to jump too much quickly into that, but is the idea that this is asking the pagans for their opinion or that, or that this is neutral territory. And I would just say, who, who made that the unbeliever's property? When you talk about the causality and all these different things, who made those things the secularist property? That's all God's property. That's why Augustine used that imagery of looting the Egyptians in several of his writings, is that ultimately what he's saying is that that's God's gold. <laughs> we're, we're taking it back. So you said fideism. Could you briefly define that for us? Right, right. I didn't define it. Okay, so we think of Luther's faith alone in soteriological terms. Well, imagine that in epistemological terms. So uh, faith now is the means by which the, the only means by which we, we know God and process religious things and so on. And so depending on which fideist you're talking about, famously you have Tertullian, even Pascal, which have Kierkegaard and, of course, uh, Bart. You have these famous fideists who are different in some ways, but they all have in common the idea that there's something inappropriate about apologetics. There's something inappropriate about um, reasoning on the same plane as the unbeliever or resting your faith or resting a, a system of theology um, on, on reason, uh, which is, I think, a very ambiguous concept. What does it mean to have reason at the foundation? I mean, our reason is always active, even when we're exercising faith over things that we don't know. So, um, Sophianism is this idea uh, of processing the entire Christian faith and religion and theology in terms of the individual, uh, to use Kierkegaard's language, to take a leap against reason, against the understanding. Uh, that's, that's fideism. Benjamin, do you have anything to add here? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, it would not be the case that someone who accepts a presuppositional approach uh, um, wants to be characterized as a fideist. They would understand that there is such a thing as as being a fideist and it's not good, right? The question would be, does it ultimately amount to something that's different, right? And um, I think that the part of fruitful discussion on some of these areas about epistemology and apologetics uh, is going to need to uh, involve um, recognizing where um, both God's revealing himself through his word as well as through nature, where they intersect and where they can be both applied in a, in a fruitful way. Um, I think the what you, what you see with um, the instinct of presuppositionalism, is they see a, a world that is awash in skepticism and immorality, unbelief, and they're wanting to f find some kind of way in which to combat that. They want, like someone like Bonson, the reason why I really appreciate Dr. Bonson and a lot of his work is that his instinct is to go on the offensive, to go um, out there and to stand for the Lord, stand for his law, stand for his truth, right? 
the question then becomes, uh, what is the most consistent way to do that? Commensurate with, um, with not, the author- not only the authority of Scripture, but what Scripture itself claims about the world and how, um, and how we would want to vindicate that since God made us with intellects and with minds, that there's not going to be anything uh, contrary to sound reason in God's truth, that anything, even if it would exceed our reasoning capacities, is not going to be anything irrational in the Christian faith. Those would be some of the the things I would say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, common ground, speaking of common ground, with the presuppositionalist, I remember R.C. Sproul telling the story about how when he would go on a college campus, he would uh, start off his talk before he got into apologetics itself and say, look, uh, I believe that every single one of you already believes in God. And I based that on Romans one twenty. <laughs> and now you may not have quoted the scripture, but he said, here's what Paul says. You already know. You already know that there is a God. You just hate him and so on. So he starts his presentation exactly like a presuppositionalist would. And I can imagine a presuppositionalist listening to that and saying, great, but then why do you go on? And, and, and so right there, I think we got to put the scalpel in and say, well, why would, uh, starting from that presupposition that they already do know that this is a moral problem, uh, maybe this is a way to say it, the, f- the fact that it's a moral problem does not mean that there is no intellectual problem. The fact that there is a hardened heart does not mean that there's also not a darkened mind. And yes, the Holy Spirit has to do something ultimately, uh, otherwise nothing will happen there, but it is instructive that so many Reformed thinkers not only embraced natural theology, but but used it. I mean, I think of Richard Baxter. I'll just say this one more thing. Richard Baxter, I, I had no idea until I looked into this. In volume two of his works, it starts off with these uh, works on apologetics, uh, in which the name is now escaping to me because I was just reading Owen's Reason to Believe, but Baxter's was a different title. But anyway, Baxter go- argues uh, for, for a lengthy period of time, very much in the same vein as Thomas Aquinas, a very a posteriori type argument from evidences in nature to the existence of God. But Baxter, of course, is committed to the same idea of total depravity and so on. So why is he doing that? Well, he's he's shining more light. So anyway, so I yeah, I agree with finding common ground with the presuppositionalist and working from there. Michael, do you have anything to add before we move on? I'd just like to ask a bit more about Aquinas, if you don't mind. My perception is that he's very hot right now. <laughs> and I have a personal aversion to fads, but I think also a professional and spiritual aversion to them. And I also have been for over six years editing Ben Maastricht's theology, as you mentioned. He has some critical things to say about Aquinas. I think most people don't realize how deep it goes. He he speaks very plainly against the entire scholastic method that he founded. He doesn't see his own careful academic theology as scholastic in that sense. He actually refuses to use the term to describe it, as many would today of him. He also, for example, in his church history, decides it's not even worth listing the works of Aquinas or the other scholastics. He's He lists many other authors in great detail. So I see all the talk about Aquinas today. I see it in Maastricht. And it just makes me wonder, though I'm committed to the principles of classicalism, is it possible that today people are exaggerating the importance of the of Thomas Aquinas himself 
and our celebration of him in the recovery of those principles. Yeah, I would just say, uh, yes, uh, in terms of fads, I think, uh, Aquinas is being inflated, uh, not in an objective way, but in terms of fad chasing, I, I think, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I took the, the name classicalism rather than Thomism, one of the reasons. But there again, I think we can disagree with Aquinas on a whole bunch of things too. I think the main thing is to, uh, so, so somebody might say, well, if we could chew the meat, spit out of the bone, Aquinas so much. Uh, well, I can't answer for other people. What I can say is that where he is right, or I think this is a principle of any author, where that author is right and where he is, and this is the important part, where he says something better than anyone else has said it, I think it would be foolish to uh, dispense with that because that can give us a found, not not to, you know, uh, not to make that person a saint or whatever it is in the Roman Catholic sense, but but to um, to better choose the meats because it's better meat. So it'll give a better foundation for uh, saying it better. Uh, my goal in reading Aquinas is to say something better than Aquinas. And that has nothing to do with me. I think it's just standing on the shoulders of giants. They would want that of us. They would want us to advance the ball further. And so the reason I read people like Aquinas or Augustine or, or, or C.S. Lewis and other people that you could, there's all kinds of problems in, in Lewis's thought. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, there's no doubt that people are chasing it as a that for them, they're going to latch onto the wrong things. They're going to go over to Rome. They're going to blame the wrong things in reform. They're not going to even look at reform scholasticism. They're going to be so impatient and go to Rome or whatever else. So some of that's just a young man problem, I think, even more than it's a Thomas problem. That's just my two cents. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Let's go into the second main thing here. So given the confusion we're, we're seeing, I think we're all in some measure testifying to what Matt is the answer that you propose? Well, um, what I call Reformed classicalism, and one of the ways I love to introduce Reformed classicalism is, is just to give people a homework assignment. What I tell them is, go back and Google this, find the R.C. Sproul, Greg Bonson debate, and listen to the intro, just the intro. Now, it's, it's scratchy, the quality, anywhere you find it, but it's worth listening to. Because Sproul talks about two concerns he has. And these two concerns are the two pillars of Reformed classicalism. And it's why it makes a beeline right into all the problems that we face in the world today and in the church. His two concerns are this. He believed that if presuppositionalism won, then you would lose both natural theology and natural law. But that's not how he said it. Here's how he said it. He said if you, if Vantillianism wins, so to speak then we will have some form of double truth. And he was alluding to the double truth theory of Averroes, the Islamic commentator who commented on Aristotle uh, during the early, or during the late part of the Middle Ages. Um, and I can explain the double truth theory, but he also said that in a different way. He brought up dialectical theology. And at that point, I think Vantillian's heads everywhere exploded as if it was a straw man. So you're saying, you're, you're joining Vantil to the, to the hip of Bart. Come on, don't you know that he wrote these two books against Bart? And and you get into that whole thing. But but that's not the issue. The issue is if you believe that there are things in, that are true in philosophy but false in theology, or true in faith and not in reason, or vice versa, true in reason, false in faith, and so on. In other words, and you say, well, how's a Vantillian guilty of that? Well, if you believe 
that the statement that in the first cause there can be no potentiality. Oh, don't say that. The unbeliever doesn't mean the same things as you do. Uh, hold on a second. Is the proposition objectively true or not? I didn't make any statement about whether or not the guy can regenerate himself or do anything positive with that information afterwards. Is the proposition true? If it's not because an unbeliever uttered it, we have a fundamental problem. You believe that there's two realities, two tracks of truth, some kind of bizarro world in which a same proposition or the same object can mean something different for an unregenerate mind than it does for a regenerate mind, and so forth. So that's what Sproul was getting at. It wasn't a, a guilt by association or straw man or anything else. He was saying, if you buy into this, this is not just about apologetic methodology. This is a fundamentally different way of understanding how truth is grounded and how truth flows and so forth, how it connects to the world and so on. And his second concern had to do with natural law. And you don't have to go very far in presuppositionalist authors. Just read uh, Frame's history of Western philosophy when he talks about Hume and the is-ought uh, distinction, the naturalistic fallacy. He'll conflate that with uh, natural law. Uh, Bodson several times in Theonomy and Christian Ethics he speaks down about natural law. You don't have to go very far in their books to realize that they, not to be an ego Montoya, but I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. When they see the word natural attached to natural theology and natural law, they understand that to be either, in the case of natural theology, they understand it to be fundamentally about the soteriological nature, in other words, the nature of man, the subjective use or performance with the data of general revelation. It's in other words, this is the theology of natural man. They're, they're, they're conflating that with something subjective. Now, about natural law, they understand the word natural to be principally its extra-biblical status. What's natural law? Well, it's not divine law. It's outside the Bible. It's what the pagans think. It's the law of the jungle. It's what the animals do. It's what the pagans think. It's all these different things. So they define it principally by its extra-biblical status. And that's not what natural law has ever meant. So they're starting off on the wrong foundation of they're misunderstanding what these terms and concepts mean to begin with. And that leads to all of the other problems. But Sproul's point is that if you lose objective truth, if you lose a metaphysical way of looking at the world, you lose both God and the world. You lose both truth and Western civilization. You lose it all. Because now you can't speak intelligibly about how things are going together. Not, not just in a way to convince Lever, but whether he's convinced or not, you're not yourself convinced that these things go together. That it's actually true about the world outside of our minds and outside of the text. So that's that's how I would, in a nutshell, explain the the project of uh, Reformed classicalism. Well, you saying that makes a lot more sense to me, given the Bonson quote I I raised earlier about we have nothing in common. If they're viewing the world in this way, actually makes sense, perfect sense that he would say this. I'll just echo things you said there uh, in terms of this word natural law, I've noticed uh, the same thing, whether it's Rush Dooney or Gary North, but, you know, both of these being Christian Reconstructionists, I don't think they understand at all what natural law means you know, historically or classically. And so what you find is that they, they'll caricature it and then they'll condemn it. And then guys who don't know any better, they'll read this and they'll think, yeah, we have the Bible, we don't, we don't need nature. Has that been your experience as well, Matt? Yeah, exactly. And to say we don't need nature, again, in this context, uh, that's another way that the word nature is being misunderstood. 
is they're they're understanding nature as in the fall or as simply as the extra biblical. But the the objective metaphysical meaning of the word nature simply meant the way things are, <laughs> which is all God's property. And so natural law was understood, whether in Aquinas or in Richard Hooker or in Junius, almost verbatim, echoing what Aquinas said, natural law was, yes, there was a rational element, but reason was, as Aquinas said, participating in the the essence of eternal law. That's what natural law is. is it's God's law in the nature of things. It, it's the way the world is. Its moral natures are objective. They are what they are. And the Bible uses natural law arguments everywhere. In Romans 1, verse Corinthians 11, when Paul says, doesn't nature teach you? And stuff like that. That's the actual meaning of natural law. Let me make sure I understand you correctly. You're saying Reformed classicalism, two pillars of that, natural theology, one, natural law, number two. Is that correct? Yeah, just about the reconstruction of those things. Yeah. So my understanding of natural law is kind of two, twofold. You can tell me if this is your understanding, Matt. Number one, it basically just means the moral law of God. Mm-hmm. And on the second hand, it means the created order, or as you've said, the way things are. Is that your understanding too? Yeah, and, and those go together because uh, the moral law is, uh, to use Calvin's imagery of the spectacles in the early part of the Institutes, he, he talks about reality being there already, but we're, we're blind. We're like an old man. And scripture is like when we put the spectacles on and we can see what was there. So the moral law is equivalent to the natural law in that sense. It's, we could say it very crassly, it's the Bible's version a more refined version of the natural law. Right. I don't, I don't know if the list, how tuned in listeners will be to this whole discussion, but you know, for me, it's, it's crucial to understand um, that natural law has an historical pedigree and uh, it's talking about the way things are. And if you lose this, I, I mean, I would agree with Sproul, you are losing something fundamental and the ramifications are massive. So Matt, Sell this to me as a theology nerd, as a pastor, a young man trying to figure out my calling, a mom with three young kids. Why, why should each of them care about Reformed classicalism? Well, I think first uh, to tie it pastorally and to the theology nerd, let's start with them. One, there's an exegetical basis. If you just start with Romans 1, 19 and 20, and then one chapter later, Romans 2, 14 and 15, you've got your grounding text for natural theology and natural law. Uh, when Paul said, and, and you know, Michael had already mentioned the words of Romans one twenty earlier, uh, but as far as Romans two fourteen and fifteen, when Paul talks about this, he's he's basically saying that the same substance, even those that do not have the law, the law of Moses, they have God's righteous requirements are written on their hearts. What does he mean? They don't have the the moral law in Scripture. They must have it in some other way. So it's the same substance, but it's by nature written on them. So that's that's an exegetical basis for that. So we don't just see models of that in Scripture, we see a grounding for it. So the first reason to care is that it's biblical. It's biblical, for one. But then I think, secondly, some of those reasons that I drew out in Sproul's opening statement, uh, and, and you might, you know, if we're unfamiliar with it, it might seem like a whopping, a pretty huge claim. <laughs> you lose Western civilization if you do. But that, that was... Um, that was what a lot of, if you, another way to say it, if you lose absolute truth in the realm of morality, I think if you say it that way, everybody would immediately say, well, yeah, it would be moral chaos and so on. So I think that would be uh, a, a wider rationale for it uh, in the same way. And, I, and of course, you could apply that to, to Christian homeschooling moms and so on. And if you, uh, you want to do something powerful, uh, you're raising up these these young men in the next generation. You want to have a 
the most theologically accurate view, and you want to have one that ties into the whole of their vocation. So it's not a, this idea that you're separating their theological education from their vocation and from some of the other things they're learning, like civics and science and so on. That's another thing, real quickly, about this whole thing, worldview. We didn't touch on this word worldview. Um, I think another fad, and I, I'm watching out for, another concern I have about my own team, the people that are retrieving all this theology, one of the pitfalls is we're going to dump the idea of worldview now because that was Kant's idea and historical worldview thinking. And Fesco even has a chapter on this in Reforming Apologetics. And when I read it, my antennas went up and I said, I'm going to keep my eye on this. And I'm going to, you know, didn't he teach at Westminster West? Mm, okay. And Van Drunen's out there. And by the way, both of them are on my committee <laughs> by my dissertation. They, they were looking at my stuff. And so, uh, and they were nice and everything. But, uh, you know, I, I do, I do want to keep my eye on this idea as it develops is how far are we going to go on dumping this word worldview and this concept? Um, and, and the knock against it is is basically it's a very German idealistic thing where you have some central dogma and everything has to kind of revolve around that and so on and blah, blah, blah. Well, hold on. R.C. Sproul used that word. A lot of people we we uh, we respect use that word as a shorthand for it, a Christian way to look at the world. And in that way of looking at the world, some ideas are bigger than other ideas. The doctrine of God is central. Scripture is foundational, ways we talked about. So are we really dumping this idea and and... On what basis do you even have a Christian school if you don't believe in this some idea of worldview? So that's it's something to watch out for that we don't swing the pendulum all the way the other direction and treat common notions as just this field that's just sort of free for all. And and that I think is what you get with the uh, the radical or I we, <laughs> what did you guys correct uh, the other uh, uh, modernist uh, two kingdom view is that that version of natural law. Uh, that I think Van Trunen is putting forward, and I think it's rubbing theonomists and others the wrong way. It's uh, kind of enabling their caricature of natural law. The idea is that um, natural law is sort of this common thing that we all have, and it becomes a recipe that demands pluralism in society because it's just what we all, it's a consensus. And that's not what natural law has meant either historically. And so, um, anyway, not to go on a rabbit trail, but I want to throw that in as another reason to buy into reform classicalism is that we, we're fighting a battle on two fronts. Uh, so sorry, I'm being long winded, but I'll just add this one more thing. Um, battle on two fronts. Um, right now, if you want to get the right view, you have to get the wrong view. And here's what I mean. If you want to get the right view about retrieval, the great tradition. I want, to, I want to read the Church Fathers, not just Thomas Aquinas. I want to read the Reformed Scholastics. I want to go back and read all these things and get back in touch with this thing that's been obscured for the past hundred years. And it's great. There's a lot of people writing books about it. Unfortunately, they're all either moderates, you want to call them boomers, call them boomers. Some of them are outright progressives, but they're not on the right. I'll tell you that. So if you want to go to those people, you got to learn it from those people that are progressives or that down are pietists and they're going to downplay our civic involvement, et cetera. Now I could go to the other side. I could say, well, I want people that are going to resist woke theology. They're going to resist progressivism in the church and so on and so forth. Now, that's great. They're out there too. They're all biblicists. And they're going to give you biblicist canons to fight back. So choose your poison. You can have one half of the Christian mind over here, or you can have the other half of the Christian mind over here. Reform classicalism is saying, no, 
before the moderate era, we put natural theology and natural law together and we put them to work and we conquered. So there you go. Uh, that's very good, brother. Thank you for all that. We had, when we had um, Stephen Wolf on a few episodes back, we talked a little bit about this um, R2K versus Kuyperian or theonomy dialectic. And we asked the question, is there a better way? And we answered and said, yes, it's classical two kingdoms. And I think that what you're saying interfaces uh, very nicely with that whole uh, discussion. I also appreciate your warning about worldview. We'd also, we don't want to become um, prideful about our ability to, you know, learn various things, you know, knowledge puffs up. So we have to maintain love and um, be careful whenever we reject the errors of any given movement. There still may be good there, which we could glean from. Michael, I wonder if you had anything to add or ask as a follow-up on this point. Not right now. I'm thankful for what's been said. Benjamin, do you have anything to add? Yeah, very encouraged by all this. And um, I, I think that if there are listeners, right, who have been committed to more of a um, theonomic or um, presuppositional mindset precisely because they're concerned about things coming out of Westminster West or Van Drunen, that these things are leading us to a cultural retreat, right? Uh, I, then I, I would really encourage uh, people to read Our Fathers on, on these things, right? You don't have to choose, you, as our um, as our brother Matt has said, our, our fathers uh, in the Puritan tradition, the Reformed tradition, they actually were militant in standing for righteousness and for the honor of the Lord, as well as being clear in their theological distinctives, right? And I think that as, as things go forward, we're going to see more of that synthesis. So just very encouraged and, and uh, want to echo things that have been said. Yeah, and if I could piggyback on that and uh, talk just a bit more about natural law, and then I'll pass the ball to uh, you, Matt, to confirm that I'm saying things correctly. Um, you know, I've talked with brothers who are theonomists, and they, they care about these public morality issues. And I've tried to tell them, well, you need natural law to deal with some of these, actually. And, you know, they tend to reject that or roll their eyes. And I'll say, well, where's the Bible verse for that condemns lesbianism, transgenderism, or pornography? Where's the Bible verse expressly that condemns those as crimes? This is important, actually, because some theonomists, Christian Reconstructionists, I believe Bonson and Doug Wilson both say uh, we shouldn't be criminalizing pornography. Anyway, I asked these brothers this question, and they'll go inevitably to Leviticus, where you know it says, a man shall not lie with another man. I say, well, that's sodomy. Where's the one for lesbianism? transgenderism, pornography. Of course, there's no express Bible verse forbidding those as crimes. And so then they start to do what? Reason from that verse. And I say, hold on, hit the brakes, brother. That's natural law. That's what we mean by natural law. You're reasoning, you're using your mind, and you're applying it to the exigencies of the day to answer these problems. Matt, do you believe that that's correct? Are they using natural law? Absolutely. And sometimes, uh, speaking of Bonson and Wilson, I think I've heard, I know I've heard Wilson do this, where he'll say, well, we're general equity theonomists. Um, we'll, we are able to tell how you would apply this law to this other situation in, in society today. Well, when you use that reasoning about general equity, 
you're doing natural law because you're you're picking out the moral principles that are long-standing or that are that are permanent that are based on the nature of things and to to echo what you said that's what we mean by natural law right i give one more example here i've used it with my wife to try to you know, try to help her understand some of these things um i've got two young sons they're they're 5 and 3 and we've got a backyard but we don't have a a gate uh, that's lock, that you could lock the backyard up with. And so I tell all my sons when they got to play, stay in the backyard. Don't go around the side of the house and go out front because I don't want you to go there. Something could happen. Who knows? That's me, in my view, applying the fifth commandment and the sixth commandment in particular to their needs, using my reason, knowing their um, their proclivities, looking at their age and their wisdom and saying, well, I need to instantiate or or form a particular law, don't leave the backyard for for their good. Would you also say that's natural law, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's about the fifth commandment. Uh, speaking of that, going the other way on the fifth commandment, all, all the different Reformed fathers that would apply the uh, fifth commandment to civil magistrates. Um, I was just reading Thomas Watson when I did my class on the Shorter Catechism. It's pretty frequent in those commentaries on the catechism to apply that to the civil magistrate. And they use reasoning that uh, some people don't buy, but I think uh, to the degree that that's valid and sound, that's natural law reasoning. Yep. So we can conclude, hello, theonomists, welcome to natural law. Yeah. So let's move on then, Matt. You recently wrote uh, an excellent article entitled The Expositional Evasion of Ethics. This is available on Matt's website, reformedclassicalist.com. Uh, could you tell us what inspired this article and does Reformed Classicalism have an answer to that problem? If so, what is it? The uh, the occasion itself was very uh, uneventful in a sense because it was just a tweet that somebody had reposted and I thought that it got thinking. But on the other hand, it was, a, it was something I'd already been thinking about from time to time because Reform people get that knock, rightly so, from the younger generation that they're kind of hiding behind something. They're hiding behind the pulpit. They're hiding behind their money, their robe. They're, well, what if, what, if, what if they're hiding behind the very form of the preaching that they're using? We know they're hiding behind phrases like gospel-centered or simply the response, well, that's not a gospel issue. We know they're hiding behind those things. But what about the very form of preaching? And it was something about the way the tweet put it. And then I responded on the thread, um, it just came to me. It was like expositional evasion. <laughs> and then I, and then my next thought was, I'm going to write an article. <laughs> so it was as simple as that. I just a uh, burst of uh, inspiration. So I, I wrote the article in an hour. And, um, and so anyway, I, and, and what's the, uh, what's the answer to it? Well, I think it's preachers, uh, the preachers have to own this. They have to learn themselves. So, so I guess step one is education for the class of preachers and the next class of preachers that come out of seminaries to how to use the civil law and how to use, you know, moral law reasoning and and civil law use in all of the texts of scripture. How does this, it's a really a case of application. How do you apply this passage? Do you apply this passage in, in a way that's not forced to the problems going on right now? And if it's, here's the thing, if it's going on in society right now, that's just another way to say, these are the controversial things that are going to split your church and that people don't really want to lose money. Uh, they want to lose, uh, you know, all that stuff. And so that's why they don't do it. And that's why they, well, I'll just go right through books of the Bible. Now, I believe in expositional preaching. 
I just don't believe you're really doing. I think there's ways to get around the text without getting around the text. You can drag your finger from left to right and say, I have done my duty. But you, 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 you downplay, you water down, you tone down in various ways some of the, the harder edges that are there. And so I think step one is just education in, in the doctrine of the law of God for seminarians in how to apply it in, in preaching. Right. So pastors have a, have a duty to understand and to apply ethics to the particularities of their congregation and the day in which we live. Michael, I wonder if you could speak to this a little bit. I know that you have before talked about the problem of um, what we could call applicationless preaching. Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, I agree from Scripture with Van Maastricht and others that application is the soul of the sermon. And exposition is important unto that end. We have to explain the Bible before we can apply it. You can't apply things you don't understand. And the middle place has to be held by doctrine. We have to be taught in a more systematic way because every passage on its own can't teach you biblical doctrine. Some passages passages teach certain doctrines more clearly than, than others, but our doctrine ought to be formed out of all of Scripture. And so it's a, it's a natural process, but it's also very appropriate to the nature of the Bible and of preaching that we would go from an explication of a text or various texts, I don't think it always has to be one, to a doctrine or doctrines in which we have a truth taught that's drawn from those texts or others, but then always applied. What must we perhaps believe as a corollary, but what also must we um, feel and must we do? What does this mean for my heart, my life? In all the various cases and circumstances, but then especially the statuses of the hearers, and this is where discriminating application comes into play, because not everyone in the congregation is even a believer, and there are some who are unbelievers who don't know they're unbelievers. And we have to deal with that reality. And then among believers, there's the weak and the strong, and there are all manner of different afflictions. And the wise spiritual physician has to know how to adapt the application to all of it. But if the what a text teaches is just put there, and even if there's some doctrinal tying together of all things, and it's not applied, it's hard for me to even count it as a sermon. And I say that persuaded in part by the statement Paul gives in 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17, where he tells us what the Bible is given for. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine or reproof or correction for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Sermons that are expositional but not applicatory, they don't fulfill that. They're not fulfilling God's own purpose for the Bible. Benjamin, could you speak to this? Yeah, I mean, the uh, I think having both you, uh, 
Cody as well as as Matt speaking to this is uh, so important because the reality is that there is great temptations that come with the uh, responsibility to handle God's work. And there is going to be these situations where you've invested in relationships, you've invested in um, cultural capital, and you've invested in, you know, even practical things about um, your the livelihood of yourself and your family. And the ultimate question becomes, is there going to be a fundamental commitment to the honor of the Lord when you're handling the word of God and the good of souls? Is there going to be a commitment to speak hard truths that are going to uh, even create problems for yourself, either professionally or relationally or whatever it may be? I think that obviously um, we understand there is such a thing as speaking the truth in love. There is such a thing as speaking it so as to be heard, right? Employing sound rhetoric in order to persuade. But there is also such a thing as man-pleasing, and we did an episode entirely about that, whereby you would deny people the opportunity of, of a rebuke, deny them the opportunity to repent by withholding what is there in the text. Right? And I think that is the kind of temptation that we need to warn people against in seminaries, right? Because it's going to be very real, right? Um, yeah, and I think that that's going to be a continual battle every time you handle the Word of God, and it's one that we need the grace of God to overcome. So on that note of man-pleasing and then tying it in with uh, your article, Matt, Expositional Evasion of Ethics, would you say that's part of what's going on when men are using these kind of buzzwords and terms like gospel-centered or using gospel as an adjective for everything? but never really getting down to brass tacks and saying, here, here's what biblical and natural law ethics demands. Would you say that's what's going on here? That's the, the heart of the problem. There's cowardice, there's man-pleasing. I think so. It's at least half of it. I mean, there might, you know, going back to the whole moral versus intellectual problem, I think that might be the case here too. There may be genuine blind spots. Um, you know, just as one example, it's so pressed on us when we're learning biblical theology or maybe when we're in seminary that we want to be Christological in all our sermons and we don't want to get a, we want to get away from the exemplary preaching. We want to do away with the whole, uh, you could be just like David, you could be just like Daniel. And so the only example in, in scripture is Christ, but even there, he's more than an example. And, and we do all that. And I think we tie ourselves in knots in ways that might create genuine spots of ignorance for some of the pastors that that the exemplary and the obligatory is somehow not there they just don't look for it because they're trying they're genuinely i guess trying to make a beeline to the cross in all of their messages and so even in that virtuous end they can sometimes enable a, a weak spot in their education so i don't know i don't know how much it might vary from person to person might be coward, might be mostly cowardice for for somebody, and it might be ignorance for another. Yeah, ignorance or cowardice. I think you're you're right. I think that's fear. One thing I think about with this problem is what what are the effects on the sheep? What happens in the pew? Uh, I think that people are confused. They lack discernment because they're not getting clarity from the pulpit in terms of 
not only what to do, but even what to think or like Michael raised, um, how to feel. Michael, do you think that that's a fair point that when you lack um, clear teaching on ethics and God's law, particular to your situation, that sheep are left wandering around and they could even fall into holes, get hurt? Oh, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, we ought to weep with Christ when we look out at the church in the world today and see the blind leading a blind and the blind and sheep wandering like as without a shepherd. Yeah, and what I think what compounds the problem is part of the language, again, that Matt, you raised in the article, something being gospel-centered. So you think, well, if I deviate from this, I'm denying the gospel or Christological. Well, I don't want to deviate from Christ. I'm not a, I don't want to be a Christ denier. You know, how would you counsel someone like that, Matt, who has those thoughts? Well, I would tell them, you know, who is the ultimate lawgiver in scripture? It isn't, you know, I think we, that's Christ. I think we can, again, it, let's not swing the pendulum all the way from one side to the other. It's, it's, good to not want to be liberals and to take uh, the argument of Machen seriously that the gospel and Christianity is in the indicative. It's not in the imperative. Christ is a savior, not an example, or not a mere example. But let's not swing the pendulum to the other side. So I think I would make it appeal to balance and say, I think you're you're throwing the baby with the out with the bathwater here in, in taking this, uh, what really amounts to an extreme view. Yeah, I think that's fair. 100%. I think... Uh... Of, of Peter. He says, Christ has left us an example that we would follow after him. And he also died in our place and it's something we cannot do. So it's a both and situation. So let's move on then. Matt, where do you see, regarding all these things, where do you see the battle at academically and ecclesiastically and what needs hit hard particularly? Well, not to oversimplify, I just put this at number one, not to make this an exclusive thing, but I think two words, new institutions. That was the lesson for Machen. Uh, he may have wanted to stay in, of course, just right ways and wrong ways to leave institutions or to build other ones. In some cases, you're not. Ideally, you can build without leaving. I think that's what Machen tried to do. And uh, I'm, I'm talking about colleges, seminaries, possibly denominations. You know, we're we're at some of those points over the last 10 years where we've had to consider those things. And I say we, I mean, people in the SBC, people in the PCA, people in, you know, you know it doesn't matter what denomination you're, you've, you're thinking about it because those things are, are, are huge. Um, and so that's, I think the first thing is we have to think through new institutions. I think on the academic level, there are a handful of faithful institutions, but the reality is, um, the, you know, what's called Christian thought, and this is the technical term in academia, it's that section of, you know, your seminary curriculum that covers apologetics, ethics, church history, and so on. Though That's non-existent in Reformed seminaries. There's two classes on church history, or a class or two, and there's an apologetics class, and there's an ethics class. Conservatives don't teach ethics classes. Progressives will teach the ethics class. That's just the way it is. There's exceptions, but they're very, very few and far between. And so everything I just talked about with what Reformed classicalism is and Sproul's opening statement, that has manifested itself in in the seminary. And you say, well, wait a minute, there's all this renaissance going on in the last 10. Well, yeah, but by and large, 
those are people in newer institutions, or in some cases, the Baptists. I mean, the Baptists are killing us actually with uh, classical theism right now with the, you know Matthew Barrett and James Dolezal and all of those guys. Um, so a lot of that is not finding its way in a strong, uh, uninhibited way into the into all of the reform seminaries, and so we do have to consider on the liberal arts, you know, uh, uh, bachelor level and, and in seminaries is institutions. There's other groups that are already forming new denominations. And I, I want to ask them, have you thought about a seminary? I mean, every, if you get four, five or six churches together in a local area, I wonder why you're not doing that, um, to, to lower the cost and things like that. So anyway, th- that's, that's the one that I tend to focus on just because that's kind of what my calling is. I think uh, we need help from the classroom. You know, if all these things, a lot of them come back to bad education at the seminary, well, then that really needs to change. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So your work then with New Aberdeen College, or was it Aberdeen College? Yeah, New Aberdeen. Yep. Yeah, New Aberdeen. This is part of what you believe in. So you've got real skin in the game then. You guys are pursuing this, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Benjamin, do you have anything to add or ask as a follow-up? No, I, I'm really happy to hear what Matt is saying, so I hope a lot of people are listening. Michael, do you have anything to add? Yes, I'd like to learn more about this new Aberdeen place. You said it's in my home state here in North Carolina. Tell me more. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be right outside of Charlotte, and uh, the, the board is made up of a, a group of pastors, who are in the uh, PCA or PC, they just, an ARP pastor as well, and um, or elder, sorry, and uh, and CREC, and uh, and I think one and and Anglican. My mistake. Sorry, there's one Reformed Anglican as well. Um, so it's not a part of a denomination. It's uh, in many ways, it's you know, it's it's trying to be classical, and so I know there are colleges out there already now. A lot of this stuff is the tuitions going up, and a lot of these big time liberal arts institutions are turning students away. So there's a market for it to begin with. But aside from those practicalities, there's the need that I just talked about. And these issues of the larger Christian worldview and how to how to wed that to Reformed confessional theology, that needs to exist in, in a four-year institution and not just uh, at the seminary level. And so um, th- there's a market for it in the Southeast. There's a lot of homeschoolers. And I think there's going to be more and more homeschoolers every year, uh, whether there's more restrictions or not. I mean, that's just the way the culture is going. Uh, and so there needs to be uh, college-level uh, institutions that can can meet that demand. And I can give you, and their website is, uh, no, I'll mess this up. <laughs> Let me just get it up here <laughs> so I don't mess it up. NewAberdeenCollege.com. That's what I thought it was, NewAberdeenCollege.com. And they've got an FAQ section and all that stuff to give you more information about it. I'd like to ask you a question about the college. Is there Are there going to be uh, online options? Yeah, and especially at first, there's going to be hybrid out of necessity at first. There'll be hybrid. Um, you know, for one thing, I'm not in the area, and so I would go there uh, various times. As far as what the format will look like, they're, they're still working all that out. Uh, I'm a professor, not on the board, and so some of the logistical things, I would just defer to them as far as how they're going to structure those. But yes, there will be uh, hybrid options at first, and... Uh, I believe the plan is to have that at some level on. Well, I'm excited to see what's going to fully materialize there. Pray the Lord blesses that. 
Matt, what do you want your legacy to be in light of all this reformed classicalism and how important you obviously think it is? In relation to that, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I want it to be a, a gospel work ultimately. I mean, the Christian worldview or the foundations of it or even ethics really aren't anything unless they do minister to people's souls eternally. Just not the idea of using the idea of gospel-centered or even the expression, uh, this world is not our home. Well, uh, this world as it is in this age isn't our home. So we want to be heavenly minded. And we don't mean that in a Gnostic way, but we don't want to swing the pendulum to the other extreme and and lose all that. And that's another thing I fear of the whole decline and fall of the new Calvinism or whatever you want to call it. That whole young restless reform thing was so many of us grew up in, whether we were part of conservative Presbyterian churches or like me, more disconnected in, in Boise, Idaho for years in independent. Um, the fact that God did use those people to preach the gospel, to clarify the gospel, to introduce people to reform theology. Uh, and now we have to chew the meat, spit out the bones. But I do fear that there is uh, a little too much confusion that, that it's all bones or toxins. And I don't believe that's true. I think God used those people in a lot of ways to introduce, uh, reintroduce the gospel to a church culture that was just sick with entertainment and um, bigness and, and other the commercialism. And, um, and so I want to, whatever I do in the classroom, I want to reproduce disciples, whole world view disciples, like the Great Commission tells us to do it. I see the college, not just the local church, I see the college as an instrument to fulfill the Great Commission. So let's then finish up here, Matt. I want you to recommend some books, some sermons or lectures on uh, reformed classicalism, you could focus on one or two or, or all of those. What would you recommend that people uh, go to to learn more about this? Well, as far as the differences between the things we talked about in the first half of, uh, you know, you really can't do much better than classical apologetics by Sproul, Gerstner, and Lindsley for that subject. When it comes to retrieval of the, the great tradition, there's so many, I don't even know what to pick. The one I just read that's really good is Matthew Barrett's book, uh, Reformation as Renewal. Now he stops at the magister. He he's dealing with the the 16th century. I thought he was going to the book. The book is so huge. I thought it would for sure it'd go to the 17th century, but it doesn't. But it, there's so much in it in terms of the continuity between the medieval worldview and the and and what the reformers were doing. So it's really good. Uh, but it's like, what do you pick? Uh, there's if you want, want an introduction to reform scholasticism, uh, Willem van Asselt's uh, little book is probably more manageable than Muller's four volume. I think you'll drown in Muller's full, four volume if you're a beginner. Read Maastricht Volume One. Read, read, read that. Read Turretin Volume One, and just compare those. I mean, I think if you just read Maastricht and Turretin Volume One, you're going to get so much out of there that's uh, helpful. And uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, just as far as my own stuff, I'll just keep making stuff. Uh, hopefully, that's better than stuff that I'd done before. Um, but uh, yeah, I think those are a few. Thank you. Michael, I saw you give a thumbs up. Is there anything you wanted to add there, brother? I heartily recommend Van Maastricht as well and Turretin. Would you add uh, Matt James Dolezal's book? Oh, yes. God. All that is in God. It's a very, that's in many ways one that started a lot of the trouble. It was a, uh, <laughs> in a good way um, of uh, getting just classical theism and it's returned to, you know, back on the map. Um, and I would recommend the volume Aquinas Among the Protestants. Uh, I know we talked about the dangers of the faddishness of, of that, and that, that's true. 
But I, I think that book is valuable. I think it's a really good book. Benjamin, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I would echo Dalzal's book, All It Is In God. And um, while there are a lot of things that I appreciate about what I was reading and, and thinking about during seminar, I was thankful I read that book. And really the courage that Dr. Dalzal showed in pointing uh, out the, the theological, theological drift that had occurred in the reform world about the um, about the doctrine of God. I think it took a lot of courage to write that, and I think initially there were a lot of uh, a lot of pushback to it. I think that recent years have borne out that uh, that was a really important work that pushed back against some of the the, the depreciation of, of our theology. And I encourage people to read that and uh, the other things that have been spoken of, of as well. Um, I wonder, Matt, is there, other than Aquinas among the Protestants, is there anything perhaps like from Peter Kreeft that you would recommend on Aquinas, or would you say just do Aquinas among the Protestants? I'd, I'd probably stick more with the more uh, reform. Now, there are guys that are Catholic that'll give good intros to Aquinas, like Ed Fazer's book, uh, Aquinas for Beginners. So I think there are good books like that. Um, and, and there's nothing too Romish in a book like that, uh, like Fazer. Um but there's other, but I would just also say, uh, read a little Augustine too, and other, other people that have summarized Augustine well, um, you know, so like, for example, Henry Chadwick says, uh, there, his little book on intro, uh, Augustine, an introduction to Augustine, that would be a good, because I, like I said, I, am not just a Thomist here. That's why I picked the word classicalist. It's just reintroducing ourselves to all of these thinkers because Augustine has a lot to offer. Very good. Thank you very much for all his recommendations, brothers. I would just like to add uh, and recommend Matt's work, reformclassicalist.com. That's where he writes. And then I do also think he has a YouTube page under the same name. And then Matt, you're also on Sermon Audio under your name, Matt Marino. So you can find his work there and, and dig into it and get to learning. I think that'll conclude it for us. Matt, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for giving of your time and sharing these things. It's been of much profit to me. I trust it will be to our audience. So on behalf of Michael and Benjamin, this has been the Old Past Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks. If the foundations be destroyed, what hath the righteous done? God in his holy temple is, in heaven is his throne. His eyes do see, his eyelids try, men's sons the just he proves. But his soul hates a wicked man, and him that violence loves. Snares, fire, and brimstone, furious storms, on sinners he shall reign. This as the portion of their cup doth unto them pertain. Because the Lord most righteous doth in righteousness delight, and with a pleasant countenance, Behold the opera.